Well, good morning again. I am blessed by a relationship in my life that I never would have cared about in my family life. I never would have thought ahead of time like this would be such a blessing if I got this relationship right. I never considered it at all. And that is the relationship with my in-laws. I love my parent-in-laws, however you say that. Uh, And even more, the blessing has come through my brother-in-laws. I didn't grow up with brothers, and I like having them, as it turns out. I'm thankful for them. And what's interesting about that is that the stereotype of an in-law relationship is usually a negative one, right? I mean, usually when we think about in-laws, we think about our crazy in-laws. In fact, in a Bible reading plan I'm doing on you version, uh, it was not, it's not about in-laws or anything. It wasn't connected to this sermon. But this week, I was reading in this devotional part, and sure enough, it said crazy in-laws. Like, that was just the assumption that we all have these crazy in-laws, and if they were just better or whatever, then our lives would be easier. And this morning, you might have seen that the title of our sermon is In-Laws, but what I'm going to talk about doesn't just apply to in-laws. In fact, that's not how I'm going to really uh, teach this passage. I won't be saying in-laws the whole time. Uh, it, it actually is, is about family, and it's about, ready for this, the division, the separation that can take place between you and and a family member, or you and a part of your family, or you and your family all together, uh, in some people's cases. In-laws may typify what we're going to look at this morning. In-laws may be the supreme example, because it's one that we have all seen, we all know, like, I really don't want to have to go have dinner with your mother type attitude, you know, your mother type attitude, where it's their mother and not your mother. We know that this kind of uh, is the example that's maybe easiest to see, but I think that what we'll find this morning is that the principles that this passage shows us are applicable to all of our family relationships. It's sad when families split, when there is division and dissension and fractions in families. In fact, as I was thinking, like, what story can I tell to start this sermon off? Where, what can I put in that introduction? I thought of plenty of stories of family breaks, of of people who don't talk to their kids and kids who don't talk to their parents, of siblings that don't talk to each other, of, uh, of in-laws that are, are so conflicted that they don't see each other anymore, of spouses that have separated, gone their own way, of grandparents that are disconnected to their grandchildren. I don't know if I thought of that one specifically, but it wouldn't be hard for me to think of that. And as I thought through all these examples, here's the weird part of it. In all of them, it was like, I can't tell that story. I can't tell that story. I can't tell that story in a sermon publicly. And the reason I I can come up with stories for other sermons and not this one is because this is something that we are all inherently embarrassed about when it takes place in our lives. If we don't talk to our kids or we don't talk to our parents, it's not something we run around sharing. When we have split from our spouses, it's not something that we post on Facebook, you know? I mean, when we have problems with our siblings, we stop talking to them, but we don't talk about it because we know that it is wrong. It's not the way that it was intended to be. It's not the way that God intended for it to be. Nobody likes to talk about the broken relationships in their families. Now, if you have a broken relationship with a a friend or a used-to-be friend, you've probably talked about it a lot. You've probably told all your other friends about it. You've whined about it to your family members. You've, You've talked about it all over the place. Like, you know what they did to me? Can you believe that they did that? Can you believe that they would ever be such a terrible person? I can't believe what they did. But if it's about your family member then most often you don't talk about it. And if you do, it's in confidentiality and you don't want somebody getting on a stage telling the story because it's embarrassing and you know that it's not the way that it's supposed to be. We've seen in this series that God created family for companionship and help. 
And when there's division in our family, when something is separating us, then we are embarrassed to say we've lost the companionship and the help of that family. Now, I want to read the beginning of our story first. It comes to us in Genesis 31, and then we'll we'll back up to Genesis 30. Because the end of the story is really not the beginning of the story. It's not... Uh, what starts the events, but it is what finishes them. And I think when you see what finishes them, you're going to see the connection to maybe your family or the family member that you're thinking of right now, where you're like, there is a divide, a separation that cannot be overcome. This relationship is destroyed. Because that's exactly what we read in Genesis 31 about Jacob and his father-in-law slash uncle weird relationship, but uh, the father-in-law, uncle, Laban, and you're going to see, I think, that this is a relationship that, for the reasons we'll look at in in a few minutes, has become so broken that there's no going back. Genesis 31, 41 through 55 says, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. I struggled with that word even when practicing. Sahadutha. And Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me whenever we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. The heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the, in the, name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. This is like the ultimate separation. In fact, if you were to continue to read the Bible after this story, Laban will never see his daughters again, at least that we have recorded for us. In fact, Laban doesn't show up in any meaningful way ever again in the Bible. He'll never see his grandkids ever again. This is the final meal, if you will, until they say, look, we're going our separate ways because our relationship is so destroyed that there now must be a divide between us. They go, hey, look, we can't cross this heap. We can't cross this heap of rocks to harm one another, and so we're just going to stay on our other sides so that we don't have to have any interaction anymore because our relationship is only damaging to you and to me. It's so bad that let's just create a divider that separates us so that we no longer have to have any contact anymore. And this is where it gets really sad, right? As long as you're still yelling at each other, then at least there's a relationship. But at some point, the yelling ceases, and all you have is a heap of rocks that divides you and the other person. It separates you forever. What's fascinating about this verse, is, or this, this section right here is, uh, to me, is that there's this really kind of pretty verse in the middle of it. It says, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. And I actually had this, this is embarrassing to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. With my first serious girlfriend, we had this verse on a heart. Uh, and th- there it is. I think That's not mine. I got rid of that at some point many, many years ago. Um, but uh, that's pretty much the exact same one. I don't know if it has as much bling in the chain uh, as this one does here, uh, but this was kind of the thing that we had and we each had one and it had this verse may the lord keep watch between you and me whenever we are away from each other sounds really nice until you remember that the prayer of mizpah as it's famously called is a threat 
May the Lord keep watch over you while you are away from me and can't see you. Basically so that he can strike you down if you do anything that I don't like. That's pertinent to some romantic relationships, I'm sure. Uh, But it wasn't the intent that we had it around our necks. But this is the idea. There's a threat here. It's not a heart. It's a heap saying, look, while you are gone, I'm hoping and praying that God will be the judge over us. In fact, he names this thing Mizpah. It has three different names, if you didn't notice while I was reading. And Mizpah means watchtower. Again, really nice sounding until you remember the context. He's like, God is the watchtower. And if you ever step foot over here to do me any harm ever again, he's going to get you. It's kind of the point. The damage is, is so bad, the division's so strong, that they actually use different words for the heap that they have created. It's kind of a funny little thing in the story, but did you notice that? They actually have to have different names for it. Like, well, I'm going to name it Galid. Well, I'm going to name it that big, long, funny name. You know, like, we can't have the same names for this thing. This is how much damage there had been in their relationship, how much arguing, how much pride, how many bad things had taken place. It's like, well, I'm going to name it. No, I'm going to name it. No, I'm going to name it. No, I'm going to name it. Bye, I named it. It's my name. I'm out of here. That's the relationship that has developed. And what I want you to hear right at the beginning is that the heap, while physically built in a day, metaphorically was not created in a day. This was a heap that had been built over years and years and years of problems and sin. Recently, I was listening to Andy Stanley, uh, his leadership podcast, and, and he said, uh, in essence, I didn't get the exact quote because I was in the car, but he said, in essence, we made a decision, him and his wife, at some point in our marriage that we wanted to parent our kids in a way that when they didn't have to come home anymore, they'd still want to come home. I think that's so profound. He said it wasn't about obedience. It wasn't about always getting it right. We just wanted them to want to come home when they didn't have to anymore. That's a huge statement for me. And what we find in this passage is the opposite of that between a father-in-law and his son-in-law. They had a relationship that when one of them didn't have to see the other one anymore, they weren't going to. In fact, they weren't ever going to see each other again. And it's because, not because they built a heap right in that moment, but because a heap had been built over years and years and years. And and here's what we're going to say as we look through this passage. It's a simple statement. We're going to see that sins are stones that break our homes. There is a buildup of sin that leads to the physical building of a heap that is uncrossable, that divides their relationship forever, that divides a relationship between his dad and his daughters forever, that divides a relationship between a dad and his grandkids forever. Sins are stones that break our homes. Now, here's how the story begins, not even the part we're going to read, and we're going to read quite a bit this morning because it all seems pretty important, but at the beginning of this story, Jacob shows up where Laban is. Laban is his uncle, it's a family member, and he goes there to get a wife, more normal than that would be today for sure, and he shows up, and he sees a girl, and he, one of the daughters of Laban, and, and he falls in love with her, and he says, I'll work for that, that woman, it's her hand, and I'll work for her, and then let me marry her, uh, Rachel is her name, and so he works seven years for Rachel, and then his dad Laban, his father-in-law Laban, pulls one over on him. You may have heard this story before. And and he's got the veil on his daughter and they go in to do marriage things. And then he realizes the next morning that he's, he's actually married the other daughter, Leah. And so then he works another seven years for his father-in-law of now his first wife, in order to get the wife that he actually wanted. And and right from the beginning of this relationship, and you will see it come out in the sections that we are going to read today, you see that one of the stones that breaks their homes is simply lying. They are people who are not truthful with each other. We tried to get this in the right order, but uh, we didn't. Lying is the first stone that is laid in this heap that will divide these families 
forever. You'll see throughout our passage that they're not honest with each other ever. And so slowly, 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 division is created. In Genesis 30, 25 and 26, going all the way back, it says, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I have done for you. Now, this is a little more specific to uh, in-laws and their children-in-law, but one of the struggles, one of the things that can cause division is being too clingy, and we'll see that more in just a second, but the Bible in Genesis 2, 24 says about marriage, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, and I think one of the hardest things for a, a parent to do is to say, you've left me now, but it is the cry of at least every son in laws heart that that father-in-law and their mother-in-law would send them on their way. Notice that it doesn't say, let me go or get away from me. I think what a child-in-law wants is to be sent on their way in a positive, healthy way. But oftentimes, parents struggle to do just that. I have a one-year-old, so I already kind of get why it's a struggle The idea of somebody marrying her is terrible. I mean, like, especially when she's one. But uh, as time moves on, I mean, it's, it's going to get closer. I actually, I thought this the other day. I know, this is crazy, but I've always been this way. And if you've heard me preach before, you know that everything is always going too fast for me. But I thought, man, we're one eighteenth of the way done until she can move out of this house and it would be normal. One eighteenth. It just started. She's one eighteenth of the way. She's going to be gone in seventeen years. Like I'm already like, what is happening? You know. And, and so I get that you want to hold on, but this passage shows us that if we cling tightly, if you, because I don't have a daughter that's married yet or a son that's married yet, if you cling too tightly, then it is going to be a, another rock. Cling that separates you and your child or you and somebody in your family. Now, this can apply not just to in-laws and and kid-in-laws. I really don't know how to say that, but uh, this can apply in other ways. Like maybe you've had a cousin and you've been best friends with your cousin their whole life and then all of a sudden they make other friends. And you're like, well, wait, you're my friend, you know, and why are you abandoning me? Anytime you try to prevent being abandoned in some type of deep inner emotional sense, then you've become clingy, I think, and you're going to push the other person away. I've talked a lot about how my cousin Jared is my best friend, and, and, and you've heard me say that before in sermons. I think one of the reasons we've maintained such a great friendship is that we just don't care that the other person has friends. You know, In fact, we want them to have friends, and we want, he wants me to be successful and meet people and hang out, and, and, and I want the same for him, and, and when we got married, we were both super excited that the other person is getting married and especially somebody we like but there was no like well you're my friend but that happens in families right and then while you think that you're clinging you're actually creating a divide that will break a family and here's Laban's response I mean it's a simple request from Jacob like let me go but Laban said to him if I have found favor in your eyes please stay I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you he added name your wages and I will pay them divination was against the law of God and we see just this initial glimpse that Laban is is not a God-fearing God-loving person And if he is in some ways, he's not in every way. He's kind of half-heartedly into this God of Jacob thing, Yahweh, the God that we serve. He's kind of in and he's kind of out. And I'm telling you that you see in this story, and there's not a lot that you can do if it's the other person, but idolatry becomes a separator in families. In the book of Luke lost my place in the book of Luke chapter 12 verse 53 this is Jesus talking about what he does on earth and he says about people that are Christians and non-Christians people who just serve idols and people who serve actually the living God he says they will be divided father against son and son against father mother against daughter and daughter against mother mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law 
The reality is, and it's a sad reality, that we are never going to have a perfect, united relationship with anybody in our family, let alone our in-laws, if they're not Christians too, or if we're not Christians too. It's impossible to have perfect fellowship between Christian and non-Christian. This is why, let me just make this super, super clear. If you're not married and thinking about getting married, do not, not, not marry somebody that is not a Christian if you are a Christian. That will be the worst mistake you make in your life. It will be. It absolutely will be the worst mistake that you ever make. I know it's tempting. I know uh, that there's cute girls who aren't Christians. I don't know why God set it up that way, but he did. Uh, But do not, not, not marry them because you will never, you will never have the perfect intimacy that you want in a marriage. And there will always be at least one brick that separates you, that breaks your home. But the reality is, just for all of us, if we look at our family member, and, and if we're the Christian, if they're not a Christian, then they're not a, not a whole wall, right? But at least one brick has already been laid, and the only way that that brick is going to be removed is for them or for you to become a Christian. Idolatry will always stand in the way of healthy relationships. And this applies in, uh, in relationships where you have two non-Christians, Because they don't know what love is. I know that's a controversial statement, but they don't really know what love is until they've experienced the love of Jesus. And so even if you're not a Christian, you're married to not a Christian, you still are going to have some type of division between you that will not be overcome until you give your life to Jesus and you find the forgiveness and the grace and the hope and all the other things that should infuse your relationship from him. The story also points here to this other stone that stands in the way of so many of our relationships, and that is the stone of selfishness. Jacob says, hey, let me go with your daughters and let us build a life. Send us on our way. And Laban's response, wait a minute. The Lord has blessed me because of you. So don't go. I'll pay you whatever you want. But even as he offers to pay him whatever he wants, that sounds like a nice thing to say, right? It's not about Jacob, nor is it about his daughters, nor is it about the blessing of his grandchildren. It's only about him. I'm telling you, you will lay a giant stone in between you and everybody else in your family if you are constantly in it for you. You cannot be selfish and have a great family, or if your family's great, you cannot be selfish and be a great part of your family. At some point, you have to look at the other people in your family and go, this isn't just about me, it's also about you and you getting something out of this and me putting something into it, not just taking from it. And, and you know if you're not that person that you look at other people oftentimes and you see it, you're like, they're the family member I don't want coming over. Because they're here for them and they're going to make it about them and it's, everybody's going to be talking about them and, and there's drama because of them and it's them, 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 them. And it's a stone that stands in the way of godly families. Sins are stones that break our homes. The next few verses says, Jacob said to him, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock have has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, what may I, oh, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. He again just grips him tightly. Jacob says, I've done so much for you. Come on, let me go do something for us. And he says, what do you want from me? It's Laban's response, what do you want? I want to keep you here. I want to hold tightly to you. Just show me what I need to do so that you don't leave me. He grips. Now, it's interesting because this is like a really big grip. This is like a bear hug grip because Jacob worked 14 years. I find this really interesting. 14 years for those two wives of his. A slave in their society needed to work six to gain their freedom. So he works longer for a wife that he doesn't want than to be removed from slavery. And then he works double that to get the wife that he does want. It's like a lot more years 
than a slave would have had to work to become free. And so here's Jacob now feeling almost like a slave to his father whom he's worked over double the amount of years to be released from slavery from. He just grips him tightly. And the New American Commentary asks this question that I think sets up the rest of our story. Would Jacob ever free himself from his uncle's hold, enabling him to return home as the Lord had promised? Dun, dun, dun. That's pretty much what the New American Commentary did there. Uh, And then it says this, don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. Notice this, this next part. Notice this, ready? Pay attention to this. That same day... What a jerk. He removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them and all the dark colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Did you notice that? Hey, you can have all the spotted and speckled ones, but I'm gonna take them over there so you can have the rest, which is zero. You can have no lambs. I'll give you whatever you want, but I'm gonna not give you anything. What a jerk. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. He runs away. And by the way, the idea here is that when he breeds these sheep of his, if there's no spotted or speckled sheep, then they're not going to produce spotted and speckled sheep. So he's going to be broke. And he puts this three-day journey between him and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Now, time, ready, time. It's just superstition. It was normal superstition, but it was frankly superstition. His goal was to go, hey, there's this thing that makes you lucky. It's like rubbing a rabbit's foot. I'm going to shave the bark off of trees, then it will be white. I'll put it into the watering trough, and then when they mate by that watering trough, it's a weird superstition, but one they had nonetheless, then they're going to have spots. That's his whole plan. But yet, even though he's superstitious, God blesses him anyway, and Jacob even recognizes that. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus, he made separate flocks for himself, and he did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now look, let me tell you what this story is about, especially the first chapter, chapter 30 that we're looking at today. It's about God fulfilling promises. Not even necessarily promises to Jacob, promises to Jacob's dad and his dad. That's what it's about. So here Jacob is like, look, I'm going to do this superstitious thing. And God works despite that superstition. And then Jacob is like, I'm going to practice eugenics. I think that's how you say it, right? I'm going to breed out the the weak animals from the spotted ones, and I'm going to breed in the strong ones into the spotted ones. That's kind of his goal, and God blesses that too. That was just a modern farming technique that he must have known about through trial and error. And so Jacob then has these strong flocks, but it's really about God's promises. And so what you see in that section of Scripture is that these two men both experience and and live out an extreme amount of pride. I mean, what pride, what arrogance, what self-focus. I mean, hey, you can have all the spotted ones, but I'm going to steal them, take them to my sons. So good luck with that. 
okay, I'm just going to do the honest thing and, and I'll, you know, whatever happens, happens. Oh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a plan to make sure that I beat you in this whole thing. This is just competition. This is just two men puffing their chests and saying, well, I'm going to beat you. It's pride. It's arrogance. And it is a stone that separates these families. Now, the other thing, and we're going to talk about this more in just a second, is that Laban can't stand in the way of God's will. No matter what Laban does, it doesn't work. He tries to make Jacob poor so that Jacob has to stay with him forever and God's promises are too powerful. They're just too powerful. And the story continues. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all the wealth from what belonged to our father. I I want you to notice this one. Man, I've seen this so many times. We did a whole sermon series on it. Jealousy or envy. It might be one of the biggest stones that that breaks homes. When we look at another person and say, I just wish I had what they had. I can't believe they've taken my dad's stuff. I think I've heard that one a million times. Or they're taking from my mom and that's money should be mine. And uh, just have a, uh, go have somebody die and, and watch how the kids begin to treat each other and you'll, you'll learn jealousy if there's any money involved right quick. Uh, jealousy separates homes. And here it's not Laban who's jealous, it's the other brothers. The son-in-law has more than we do now. How dare him? And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages 10 times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have, not seen, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you to do. And this other thing that you see here, I think this happens in a lot of families, is simply prevention of God's will. I mean, we see in this story that God has a plan for Jacob's life. You are supposed to go back, and you're supposed to take your families back, and I'm supposed to give you land, and I'm supposed to bless you. This has been my promise and my will. This has been my aim for your life. And Laban is standing in the way of that. And I wonder, do you ever stand in the way of another family member's life and what God has for them? I think this takes place. I think too many parents, just stick with the parent theme, they want their kids to be safe and happy, but they don't really want the will of God for them. I think a lot of parents stand in the way of their kids doing great things for God because they just want them to be safe and happy. And sometimes they want them to make them look good. Well, don't be a missionary, be a lawyer, you know, because what does that say about me if you just go off to a third world country? I think that while we may not notice this, we may not pay attention to the prevention of God's will, oftentimes this is a stone that breaks our homes. And this other one, oh man, and it kind of describes everything we're talking about, but it's so important to think about it. Just division. What unnecessary divisions are you creating in this whole story? It's your family, my family, them, us, your dad, my dad, you, me. 
It's an unnecessary division that has been created, at least in their minds. I was convicted about this this week, and, and Brent and I never do this in a negative way, but we always say your family and my family. And for the most part, it's just a delineation, you know, like it means are we going to my parents or her parents, you know? But what if we just in our language, our very language would just say our family, just our family, this is our family. And a lot of times divisions are unnecessarily created. Maybe they've been passed down to us. I don't know. But we create these divisions. It's like, well, that cousin's line, we don't really talk to them. You know, it's, though, it's that line right there. Or that sibling's kids. You know, they are all, ugh. you know, like that's not the ones we want over here. Or don't tell them about the party, you know, because they, it's a they thing. And I just wonder if we just broke down those divisions. We just stopped and said, this is us, our family, we, together, that maybe some of the separation that has been created would go away. Maybe. The story, I'm going to skip a section here. Um, but it continues uh, by talking about how Jacob and the wives run away. And man, I want to point out that this is so sad, something that I cannot imagine. Notice the daughter's language at the end of that section. And they say, do whatever God has told you to do. I think they're right in that, but this other part is what's really sad. There's nothing for us here. Are you that type of family member? That there's nothing for your family when they're around you, when they're with you, because they've seen your selfishness or how you prevent God's will or your pride or you create these divisions that don't need to be there. And, and finally, like family members just get to a point where it's like, there's just nothing for me there. I'm not going to Thanksgiving dinner because I know what's going to happen. You know, there's nothing good that's going to come out of it. Maybe you've said it that way. It's terrible. And so they create this plan. We're just going to run. And they run. Genesis 31, 17 says, Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all of his livestock ahead of him. I'm going to skip through parts of this. And then it says later on, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And then it says, Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. And then skipping down, Laban chases him. Catches up to him, and this is what he says. What have you done? You deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Deception and lying are very similar, but it uses a different word here. Do you deceive people? And maybe you've been able to rationalize and say, well, I don't really lie to them. I just deceive them. And I want to tell you a secret, you family people. If you're in a family and you're consistently being deceptive, people may never tell you that they know. You might have gone your whole life thinking, wow, I just get away with lies and deception and I'm dishonest, but I get away with it and nobody's ever noticed. It, people notice. People notice. Especially your family, they notice. They definitely know that you're being deceptive. They don't say anything to you. They just distance themselves from you. It may not be a distance of physical space. It may just be an emotional distance, but they distance themselves from you, and you just don't know it. And maybe you wonder, where have they gone, or why don't they call me, or why don't they confide in me? It's because you are a deceiving person, and you have put a stone down that is breaking your home. Or, or how about this other one that we see? I, I know I skipped around in that passage, but, but how about this one? And guilting somebody. How about just guilt? Good night. I tell you, the fastest way to separate me from you, if you're part of my family, is just give me a guilt trip every time I see you. Why haven't you called me more? Well, I'll tell you, because that's all you ever say to me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so the conversation's not that fun. 
or I can't believe you didn't, or you should have, or I wish you'd come over here more often. You're going to put, I know that the goal might be good, the intent might be good, but if you're constantly guilting somebody in your family, then I'll tell you what, you are laying a stone that's going to break your home. And that's exactly what Laban does here. He won't let him go, won't let him go, won't let him go. He's got this tight grip on him. They run off and he goes, well, why didn't you just tell me you wanted to leave? I would have sent you off with a hug and a kiss and some singing, man. Like this was so bad of you. How dare you do this to me? I'm sure Jacob is like, seriously, are you serious, man? But it's guilting. And so many people are guilty of this. If you constantly are laying guilt on another person, then you will constantly be laying stones that will separate you from your family. And then the last part of this story gives us just one more. It says, I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night. And sleep fled from my eyes. I was like this for 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and my toil of my hands and last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters, the children are my children and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine, yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine? Or about the children they have born. Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. This final stone that is laid in this relationship is the stone of unforgiveness, and it comes from Jacob to Laban. I mean, did you notice that every bad thing just spilled out of him? He had not forgiven these things. He hadn't forgotten about the animal who died and it came out of his wages. He hadn't forgotten about the sleepless cold nights. He hadn't forgotten about how hard he worked or how hot it was. He had not forgiven any of these things. And so when Laban says, what are you doing? Jacob says, let me tell you what I'm doing. And it spills right out of him. If you are an unforgiving person, if you are a person who does not forgive then you have laid a stone that will break your home. Jacob, in the middle of this, says, you would have sent me away empty-handed. And I just want to say to you that if you want to be a family member that is good and helpful and honoring to God, then you must not be a person who leaves everybody around you empty-handed. And you must not be a person who lays stones that will break our homes. Don't be a liar and don't be an idolater. And don't be selfish and don't have too tight of a grip. And don't be prideful and don't be jealous. And don't prevent God's will. And don't make divisions that don't need to be there. And don't guilt people and forgive. Don't hold grudges. Colossians 3, 13 through 14 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. The first thing I want you to hear is don't lay these stones. And you could probably think of 50 other stones that can be laid that will eventually be the divider that separates you and your loved ones. You can think of a million sins that will break your homes apart forever. Don't lay them. And if you lay them, pick them right back up. You go, oh, I'm jealous, like I'm angry at them because they achieved and I didn't achieve. Stop. Go tell them. Say, hey, look, I was jealous, but I want you to know that, that really what you're doing is awesome. You lie, tell somebody, I lied to you. I'm sorry I lied. I'm going to try not to do it again. You're selfish? Stop it. It's not that hard to not be selfish. 
Just do something for somebody else and not yourself. It's kind of the key. Just don't be selfish. Do something for somebody else and stop doing everything for yourself. You've been a, a deceiving person. Don't deceive. Say, hey, I deceived you. And I want to make it clear that, that I did and that I'm going to try not to do it again. You create divisions. Stop making those divisions. Don't look at them. It's they and them and those people. Start to say, it's us. This is our family. Through all the generations, this is our family. Don't guilt people. When your kid calls you, say, I'm glad that you called. Not why didn't you not call me before? Don't guilt people. Forgive. Don't bring up the things that have happened 20 years ago. Stop it. Pick up the stone. Pick it up before there is a heap built that will separate you and your family forever. But this other part that's so clear in that Colossians passage I just read is that it can be overcome. Some of you, as I preach this sermon, I know are going, I've built a heap. I've built a heap. There's separation. My home is broken. Is there any hope? And the answer is yes. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And the reality is, as we put Colossians together with Ephesians, what we see is that grace is the hope. Because the reality is, sins are stones that divide our homes, but grace can overcome them. Sins are stones that break our homes, but grace can overcome them. We don't often think of grace as a sledgehammer. But when it comes to the broken families in our lives, the thing that we need to knock them down is grace. It's the thing that can remove the stones that have been built up over years and years and years and years. And it can allow us to once again cross the dividing line that has separated you and your brother and your sister or your parent or your son or your child or your spouse or whoever it is in your family that you never thought you would ever be able to interact with again in any type of loving powerful, profound, family-style way. Grace is the answer. Don't put the stones down, but once they're down, the answer is grace. The grace of Jesus, when it comes into your life, it makes these stones a lot easier to overcome, first of all. I mean, when you know the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus, then you look at the stones that other people are building and they don't seem so tall anymore. I can tell you that just from personal experience, there's oftentimes moments in just about every relationship where I go, that's something I never want to overcome. I never want to forget that stone. I want it to sit as a reminder forever that they did this to me. And every time, whether I like it or not, every single time, there's a whisper in my head that says, Chad, how much have you done to me? And yet I overcame it by dying on a cross. So you will forgive. You will forgive. If there are stones that separate you from family, then you must, must, must Accept and understand and embrace the grace that Jesus has given to us. And out of that, you must be a person that becomes gracious towards others. And let me remind you what the grace of Jesus looked like. It looked like humanity sinning for thousands and thousands of years, over and over and over again, rejecting him and laying stones that separated him from us. Stones that separated him from us. One after another, after another, after another, after another, humanity built up and Jesus came and he died on a cross and was laid behind a stone dead so that those stones could overcome. But when he came out of the grave and that stone broke forth, it allowed for humanity to come once again into the presence of God. The heap was ruined forever. And the same can be true for us if we will dispense grace upon other people. I will hurt instead of allow this stone to separate us. 
I will be broken before I will allow for this stone to break our relationship. I will suffer before I let this stone stand in the way of our family being a family. Because I know that Jesus did all that for me. And so I say one more time, sins are stones that break our homes, but grace can overcome them. Please pray. Lord, I pray. I know, I just, I I pray, God, that you'd fix homes. I know, Lord, that every person in front of me has some type of relationship in their family, and this can apply out of the family, but in their family, God, that is broken because stones have been laid for so long. And I pray, God, that your grace would tear down the heap that stands between us and that person that we used to love, that we used to be connected to, that we used to have a good time with, Lord. Tear it down, God. I'm going to do something a little different off the cuff. If you fall into this category and you have brokenness in your home because of the sins that have been laid as stones, uh, will you put your hand up? I just want to see your hand. I'm going to pray for you specifically right now. Uh, Lord, those people who are recognizing these broken relationships, I'm sure that a sermon is nice and provides hope, but they still probably feel, God, uh, like it's not overcomable. And I pray that you would erase the doubt and fill them with your grace right now, Uh, a grace that convinces them, God, that you overcame the grave and you can overcome the heaps that divide our families. Jesus, I thank you so much for coming and dying for us so that we could have a relationship with you. It's because of that that I pray these things. In your name, amen.